The Fake Show podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Hutchison and Stefan, the Craft House Brewery, now with two locations, the Tone Factory Recording Studio, Moonshot.com T-shirt designs, Mr. Antenna, and by Banger Brewing in downtown Las Vegas. Now your host, Jim Tofty. Soledad O'Brien is a journalist, speaker, author, and philanthropist who has won numerous awards, including three Emmys, a Peabody Award, and the DuPont Prize. Besides authoring and producing Matter of Fact and reporting for HBO Real Sports, her latest venture is a true crime special on Discovery Plus, and she joins me now from New York City. Soledad, how are you this morning? I think the last time I talked to you, we were talking about a, uh, a veterans special that you were doing that was so great. Yes, thank you, thank you. Yeah, this this project is amazing as well. It's a it's a look at a murder that if it hadn't been for the, the power and the aggressiveness of, uh, of the victim's mother, really probably would never have been brought to justice. And this is a, a true crime special that's running on, what, Discovery Plus? Yes, it streams on Discovery Plus. Tell me a little bit more about this and how you became involved in it. Sure. So in 2014, 19-year-old kid, his name is Praveen Varagis, uh, was at a house party, college student, and he just never came home. His mother um, eventually went to the police. They couldn't find him. And five days later, he was found dead. The police originally had a theory that he just wandered off into the cold. And his mother said, well, that just doesn't make any sense at all. And it was really her pushing over two years that helped police or force, maybe is a better word, the police to be more aggressive in how they were thinking about this case. Tip leads to a, a teenager uh, who tells police that, in fact, he had Praveen in his car and let him go in the woods. And eventually, with the mother pushing and pushing and getting access to a radio reporter locally who also continues to help push, they sort of force the prosecutors to do better in this case and be more aggressive about, about it and and get public pressure involved in the case. But it, it literally takes years. So in a lot of ways, it's the story of a mother who just refuses to give up on her son. And the story, I think, of a police department that could be more aggressive, but sort of just isn't all that interested until eventually a special prosecutor's called in. And, you know, Soledad, I hear about this in many towns where the police kind of, they go as far as they think that they have gone to its natural conclusion, but then a parent said, yeah, there's something not right about this. Can't you do more? And it, and it, the case continues because of that. Exactly. Well, you know, I mean, for example, a good example of this would be when they find Praveen's body. He's got bruises all over his face and his mother, lovely, is a nurse. And she says, this is not indicative of a person who got lost in the woods and got cold and just died of exposure. Like this is a this is indication of a beating. And so then she wants access to the autopsy because she begins to feel that, you know, she's being very aggressive, but that, you know, nobody else really is being as aggressive as she is. So it's, it's truly, I mean, her love and her dedication and her mission of getting justice for her son is what drives all of this. The way it came to us, interestingly, uh, I'm working with a, another team as well, um, is that the family started shooting everything, videotaping everything about three months after the death. And so over the last couple of years, they've just been capturing so much. And we knew there was, a, you know, as a producer, that's a treasure trove of information to be able to, um, to tell a story and to tell a story thoughtfully and fully. And so we really thought 
that made this project even more riveting. One, her passion, but two, all the content that they've been creating and and hanging on to over the years. You know, I've watched you for a very long time. You were anchoring and newscasting and traveling all over the world covering stories and (laughs) moving away from that and choosing basically your own projects. It sort of freed you up to do more interesting work, hasn't it? Yeah, you know, when I started my own production company, um, which I've really enjoyed. I did that about eight years ago now. On one hand, if you're a freelancer, right, you're working all the time. But on the other hand, you get to pick and choose the projects and also who you're working with. You know, you never have to go into an office and say, oh, I don't want to do this. In fact, as the CEO, we have a small team, 13 full-time employees. You know, I help create the tone of the office and, and what our office, you know, is about. And so I've really enjoyed that. i it was a hard to start doing it because I'd never had any real leadership training, you know, and, and, yeah. and managing is a real skill. We've all, we've all had terrible managers. Right. <laughs> but, uh, but it's been a really wonderful opportunity to say, I like doing this and I don't like doing this. I've worked on some stories where I would sit there and think, I, I wish I were home at my kid's birthday party. I, I don't think, I don't think I need to be in on this one. And that's very frustrating when you're trying to juggle a lot, be a mom, you know, and, and raise your kids, and also, you know, do your job as best as you can. I'd like what you said in a recent conversation, uh, asking what it means to be an American, and especially at uh, this time where our country is just so divided right now. Yeah, yeah, it's a crazy time, isn't it? And and I think the interesting thing is that everybody has a different definition of it, right? For some people, an American being an American is about the flag and uh, and their service, if they're service members. And for other people, it's about coming to this country as a foreigner and, and choosing to be naturalized and contributing. And for other people, you know, it's just a different definition. So it was a really interesting, that was a special that we did the other day that aired around the country. Um, it was it was actually streaming as well. And really, um, I think it was a good look at kind of how we think about being a citizen. And I thought the most interesting stuff was about the history of citizenship, how many Americans were brought here to work and then told, oh, you'll never be a citizen. Even though you're here, your children are here, you can't be here. That was kind of crazy. Yeah. And I love that you've taken various media to task on their point of view because uh, (laughs) it's, you know, and this is where it's very helpful with social media, tweeting and all that stuff, because it's the case where every anchor uh, or reporter, they all kind of have their master to answer to. And so their point of view is whatever corporate says it is in most cases. You know, I have to say in all the years I've worked in corporate media, I, I never had somebody come down on a high from corporate. Really, never. And believe me, you know me. I'd be the first person to tell you. (laughs) I think it's a little bit, it's just easy. It's easy and a little bit lazy. I've got to be honest, right? It's just easier to be like, it's just hard to be the person in the room who says, well, let's talk about the counterfactual on this. Let's talk about the opposite. What What if this thing we're all saying is wrong? What if we looked at it this way? It's one of the reasons I argue so hard for you know, diversity. And when I talk about diversity, I mean, true diversity. People talk about diversity and they're like, oh, black people or Latinos. I'm like, no, a very diverse newsroom is diverse, socioeconomically diverse, uh, diverse in terms of region, diverse in terms of gender, diverse in terms of race and ethnicity, because you get people to push in different areas and say, well, here's how, you know, people in this community look at something. 
And I, I sometimes think it's less about corporate masters, truly, and just a laziness of, of the same thinking. So it's just kind of easy. When we see this, uh, the story that lasted for quite a while, Marjorie Taylor Greene and how she was in the news every day for a while, the networks just can't turn away. It's like a train wreck. I mean, you, you cover her because it's great ratings, even though most of us just kind of feel, ugh. Yeah, no, it is. It, it is. And, and of course, the question that I think that I often raise that people don't want to talk about is, but you're giving platform to a liar. And by the way, as you know, there are millions of ways to cover people without giving them the mic. You can do stories. You can talk about issues. I'm not saying ignore someone who's important in the conversation at this moment. It's just right. be thoughtful about how you actually, why are you giving them five minutes of live TV to go on and rant about stuff that's factually untrue? That's problematic to me. You know, another part of this, of course, is social media, and it's emboldened millions of people to become commentators. Can you remember a time before social media where we were just reading the newspaper and doing other things like that, whereas now it's just everybody's riled up and making their own particular point of view known? Yeah, I agree with you. On one hand, I'm so not a fan. I mean, I always call Twitter, which I'm on a lot, the cesspool, because it just is. <laughs> yeah. But on the other hand, I feel like I get access to a lot of stories that I wouldn't have heard about um, if I if I weren't on social media. So it's kind of a blessing and a curse, to be honest. But yeah, there's no question. You just have, you know, if you're famous on Twitter, you can become a personality who suddenly moved to television because there's a sense that, you know, you talked about ratings and popularity. And so it sort of doesn't matter what you're saying, but if there is this popularity that you know, that, that they can take from, from social media and move on to television, suddenly you get a platform. And I, I think that explains a lot of Marjorie Taylor Greene, by the way. You lost your parents, as did I, a few years ago. And one thing that I've always thought is, did I ask both of them enough questions about their lives and where they came from and, and what they were thinking. And I'm wondering if you feel the same way. Did you talk to your parents enough about all the stuff that happened in the past? You know, uh, I did not. I definitely think about it all the time. And I was yeah. writing a memoir, so I actually interviewed them. But, you know, my parents were born in the early 1930s. And they were very, that, that era I have found are people who do not want to share. Like you had to drag every piece of information out of them. They're just, you know, they definitely had the philosophy of it's not something we like to talk about. So we just never speak of it. <laughs> and I remember once when I was going to go to Cuba for the first time in the 1980s, and I said to my mom, can I get the address of my relatives in Cuba? She had been corresponding with them. We were not allowed to travel. I could get a journalist visa. And she's like, nope. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> really? I said, mom, I'm a I was working for NBC News. I'm like, Mom, I could actually put the effort in and the resources of the network in to find them. <laughs> Why just tell me? Because I think she was worried. Like, I don't know if I want you to have that relationship yet. And I ended up having that relationship. And my siblings and my cousins all get along. And it was amazing. Um, but, you know, like, she left Cuba uh, in the 1950s. And... And, you know, I think emotionally for her, when Cuba was going through so many rough times, to be the only sort of person who got out in her family was actually very hard on her, right? So so her strategy was, we shall never talk about it, which I think is not such a great strategy. But, but that is the strategy of people from the 1930s, man. 
Wouldn't that be an interesting special to work on? Because I know that, for instance, my dad was a uh, World War II vet. He was a pilot. His plane and his crew, they were shot down. They all survived. And they all escaped the uh, Germans who were pursuing them. They got away. They were actually considered prisoners of war. But I didn't know about that because my parents didn't tell me that until I looked that up on Ancestry and just happened to run across that. Wow. Yeah, isn't is that... It, right? how, how do you not tell your child that story? Right? I... Like... <laughs> I know. And it's just like, well, and I understand guys who come back from war, they don't want to talk about a lot of that stuff. I get that. But yeah, I mean, uh, and then I did talk to my mom about it for a couple of seconds. And she said, oh, yeah, this this is what happened. Trauma involved. You know, I think for my mom, leaving Cuba was very traumatic. I'm sure for your dad, right? Serving in the war was very traumatic. And right. so the strategy is just, just no, don't talk about it as a, as a as in a way, a treatment or a, ma- a way to manage trauma. How proud were your parents of you? They must have really gotten a kick out of how how much great work you've done in this business. So my parents were very devout Catholics. My dad's twin brother was a priest and two of his siblings were priests. My parents' biggest wish was that one of their children would go become a nun or a priest. <laughs> so let me frame my answer with that. Uh, they were perfectly proud, but I'm one of six, and none of us joined the priesthood or became nuns. And so there was this little piece of disappointment in <laughs> we had six children. Not a one of you could join the priesthood? Come on. <laughs> oh, wow. It's going to be another great special. I'm looking forward to this one, this true crime special on Discovery+. Plus. You know, I'm just so glad that your voice is heard in this country on TV. It's, it's always great catching up with you, Soledad. Thanks for having me, and likewise. And by the way, Soledad and her husband are founders of Powerful Foundation, which helps young women get to and through college. That does it for this episode of The Fake Show Podcast. Hope to see you next time. I'm Jim Tofty. Listen to The Fake Show anywhere on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and thefakeshow.com.